My name is Anna Orberry. I'm Johanna Tilkanen. And I'm Ben Horton. And you're listening to The Climate Briefing, a podcast from Chatham House. Hello and welcome back to another episode of The Climate Briefing from Chatham House. You're incredibly lucky listeners today because you have all three co-hosts of the podcast together, remotely at least, and we've got three amazing interviews lined up for you. So Anna, what are we focusing on this week? Yeah, so this week we're going to be talking about climate finance, which of course plays a key role in enabling climate change mitigation and adaptation. And it's also a really important issue within the UN climate change negotiations. It is also the case that 2020 is a really important year because it constitutes the deadline by which developed countries are supposed to mobilize 100 billion US dollars per year to support climate action in developing countries. And finally, climate finance was also the focus of our most recent diplomatic briefing. And we've lined up three of the speakers from that briefing event to take us deeper into this quite contested subject. So Anna, who did you speak to? Yes, I spoke to Matthias Frimeri, who's Sweden's chief climate negotiator and head of delegation to the UNFCCC. And we spoke about the role that climate finance plays in the COP negotiations. Uh, So we talked a little bit about what happened at COP25 and what is expected to be discussed at COP26. And we also talked a little bit about Sweden's thinking on the need for a green recovery after COVID-19. And Johanna, who did you speak to? So I spoke to Tenzing Wangmo from Bhutan, who is the lead negotiator for the least developed countries group at the UN climate negotiations. And our discussion focused on the role of the least developed countries group and what climate finance means from the perspective of these countries, who whilst are the poorest of the international community, often are also the most vulnerable to the impact of climate change. And Ben, who did you speak to? So my interview was with Rachel Ward from the Institutional Investors Group on Climate Change. And we took a more kind of non-governmental approach to this. So her organisation works to increase cooperation between private investors and get them mobilising on this issue. And so we looked at the role that the private sector can play in mobilising the money that Anna mentioned earlier, and also how they can get involved more actively in the in the climate agenda. So let's have a listen. So today I have the pleasure of interviewing Matthias Frimidi, who has just assumed the position of Sweden's chief climate negotiator and head of delegation to the UNFCCC. Matthias is also a member of the UNFCCC Standing Committee on Finance, and he represents Sweden on the steering committee of the NDC partnership. And on top of it all, he's actually also an old colleague of mine, we used to work together at the Swedish Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Really nice to speak to you, Matthias. Thanks for joining us in this episode of the Climate Briefing. Thanks. Good to join you. So, since this is the first interview of this episode, I thought we'd start with the basics. Could you please tell us, what is climate finance and why is it important? Climate finance is important for the world to be able to make the transition to carbon neutrality in accordance with what we've committed to in the Paris Agreement. And there's, all, there's actually a commitment in the Paris Agreement for parties to successively align global financial flows with the goals of the Paris Agreement. So meaning both sort of to, to work towards adapting to climate change and, of course, also to mitigating emissions. So making sure that we're staying under the 1.5 degree target of the Paris Agreement. And it's also a really important topic in the UN climate negotiations. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what the main climate finance related agenda items at COP25 were. 
Well, I think one of the basic elements when it comes to finance within the negotiations is the commitment that we as developed countries have made uh, already in Copenhagen in 2009 to deliver 100 billion US dollars annually from this year, actually, 2020 up until 2025. And that's a commitment which we're standing by. We were committed to delivering this kind of finance to support developing countries in meeting the, uh, the goals of the Paris Agreement. So that's been a one, one core element of the discussions uh, and the negotiations when it comes to climate finance in particular. But then, of course, there are other sort of elements of the finance negotiations as well. And just looking at the agendas of the COP, for example, there is one element where we're discussing guidance to the financial mechanism, as we call it, the, the two main climate funds, the, the Global Environment Facility and the Green Climate Fund. There's also another fund called the Adaptation Fund, which has a separate uh, agenda item. And then there's something we call long-term finance, which very much relates also to the 100 billion goal and how we're delivering on that specific goal. But then there's also a committee which you mentioned, the Standing Committee on Finance, and the work that the committee does to, to support the COP in, in taking the finance agenda forward. So, and then there, you know, finance comes in under other agenda items as well. So it's, it's a pretty broad picture that we could be painting when we're talking about finance within the, within the UNFCCC negotiations. Just to pick up on the, the climate finance goal that you mentioned, and that's due to be achieved in 2020, do you think that it will be achieved? Yes. Now, a problem in showcasing that is that the sheer statistics of pulling all the numbers together comes with a slight delay. So we won't be able to show the figures for 2020 until 2022, basically. So the latest report, which we did in the Standing Committee on Finance, came out in 2018. And so the next one is due now in 2020. It was originally due in 2020 ahead of COP26. And also the OECD that had been doing a report. And the latest OECD report on the 100 billion came out in September last year. And that's what had figures up until 2017. So, I mean, there, there is a delay in, in reporting. You know, we, we have to sort of be able to show also what we're doing uh, this year, but that won't be until 2022. We are, of course, living through a pandemic at the moment. In your view, is there a risk that COVID-19 could have an impact on the prospects of achieving the climate finance goal? Well, there's definitely a risk. I don't think we should shy away from that. I mean, since much of the development finance is very often linked to donors' GNI or the gross national income, I mean, for Sweden and I think for, for many other countries as well. So for us, for example, 1% of our GNI goes to development finance. So obviously, if, if there is a fall in economic output in a specific country, which is projected to happen for this year, there is also a risk then that the flows of development finance will actually be lower. And again, as you mentioned, with the pandemic, there might be priorities which are being set, which would need to be changed because of changing priorities in developing countries and so forth. So there's definitely a risk. Then again, from our side, much of the, the, the Swedish development cooperation is very much driven by multi-annual strategies. So the amount of finance which we deliver is a result of what's in those strategies, and those are not being changed at the moment. But ultimately, this will, again, be more clear further down the line, and maybe not this year, and maybe not even next year, but then in 2022. But again, coming back to our commitment for the 100 billion, I mean, that remains very strong and steadfast. I mean, even though we're faced with this challenge now when it comes to 
potentially dwindling budgets or at least smaller budgets. Uh, I mean, our commitment bill is, is as strong as ever to deliver on, on, on 100 billion. When you talk about we and, and our, are you talking about Sweden then, or is it kind of the wider international community and other large climate finance firms? Well, I mean, I, I of course can only speak for Sweden, but I would think that this is, I mean, this is a joint commitment by the, the donor community to deliver on the 100 billion. So yes, I would, I would think that my colleagues would share this assessment. So moving on to COP26, which has been postponed now until next year, what do you see as the most important climate finance related agenda items uh, at that meeting? Well, there's going to be a new item introduced, which we agreed in Katowice uh, in, at COP24 and then 2018. And that's that we're actually starting deliberations on a new climate finance goal to assess sort of a, the successor to the 100 billion. So since the, the 100 billion goal runs from 2020 to 2025, then there is an agreement among parties that there will be a new goal set for the period post-2025. And so the new goal is not being set until later, but we have agreed to start deliberations on the new goal already at COP26. So that's going to be a new type of discussion that we'll, we'll be having. And uh, that, of course, remains to be seen how much or you know what the, the deliberations will actually be delivering already at COP26. There might be sort of just be a starting gun fired saying that now we have started deliberations or there will be more sort of direction given by COP26 on what uh, the parties would want to see that these deliberations should be uh, you know what kind of directions they should take what kind of factors they should look into and so forth. But that's going to be one new element. And another new element is also a, a report which I'm happy to be co-facilitating with a South African colleague, which will be presenting a sort of a, a determination of needs for developing countries in implementing the Climate Convention and the Paris Agreement. And that was also agreed at COP24. So that's a work which is ongoing now on the elaboration of that report. So that will also be presented to COP26. Interesting. When you talk about needs, is that just financial needs or are we talking about other types of needs as well? No, it's a sort of a broad range of needs. And I think from our side in elaborating the report, we're looking into the kind of studies and reports which are already out there, both sort of within the UNFCCC system, but also outside. So there can be reports from various types of actors, you know, the UN system, uh, the multilateral development banks, from bilateral donors, from countries themselves, from other types of actors which are doing these kinds of reports. So we're sort of compiling all that into one report and presenting that to COP26. So I would imagine that it's, it's going to be financial needs, needs when it comes to specifically on mitigation, specifically on adaptation, technology, capacity building, could be related to various types of sectors, you know, energy, transport, infrastructure, and so forth. So we're trying to look at it from various different kinds of uh, perspectives. And how is this needs assessment expected to be used? You mentioned before that the deliberations on the new climate finance goal are due to start at COP26. Is there a link between these two processes? There's no formal link. The report itself, when it was mandated by COP24, it says that the, the SCF, the Standing Committee of Finances, are requested to present this report for consideration by the parties at the COP. So it's up to the parties to decide what they, how they want to use this report once we get there. And has that discussion already started or, or not really? Well, I think there, it's, it's fair to say that there have been suggestions uh, on, on how to, I mean, some parties would want this 
report to be as an input to the deliberations on the new goal, whereas others might not be making that specific link. So I think you know we're, we're focusing right now on actually elaborating the report and presenting a, a com- as comprehensive report as possible. And then we'll see how the parties wish to take us forward. So just returning to the issue of COVID-19, and there is a lot of talk these days about the need for a green recovery after this pandemic. What is Sweden's thinking on this topic? Is Sweden integrating climate aspects into its response to the economic impacts of COVID-19? Well, I think just initially to say that, you know, personally at least, I, I think it's been fascinating and, and very encouraging to see how quickly the, the concept of green recovery has been gaining ground in climate circles, but also in other kind of conversations which are being held at various levels. And you know, we've been doing some, some thinking internally on how we see that this concept could, could be taken forward you know, with everything sort of from carbon pricing to sustainable finance to supporting industry-led uh, roadmaps for transition to carbon neutrality. A lot of these actions, which, which we've been doing on a national level already, but could be then used also to, to, to drive the recovery, making that as green as possible. And there's ongoing discussion within the EU on how to frame the recovery uh, of the union as a whole. Uh, and I think there have been a, a number of contributions from various actors, all, everything from uh, the World Bank and the IMF to various civil society actors looking into what the green recovery could entail. But also calls from, from business actors on sort of the, the need to make the recovery as green as possible. And not only the need, but also the possibilities which are in there. How we can use the opportunity which is presented to us with these massive investments which are being made and how those investments could actually be used to accelerate the transition to carbon neutrality and the implementation of the Paris Agreement and actually put us in a better position coming out of the crisis than we were going into it. And the wider concept of building back better, I think, is, is gaining ground in, in an encouraging way. Uh, so I think that's a, a global conversation which we're happy to be part of and, and looking forward to continue to contributing to. So as we've discussed, climate finance obviously plays a critical role in enabling climate action. What are your thoughts on the way forward? Does the current climate finance architecture need to be reformed? And what is the role of the private sector in all of this? Oh, that's a big question with a, a lot of potential perspectives and answers to it. But I think just in brief, I mean, one of the takeaways, at least from my side, from COP25, was to see the kind of engagement, a very encouraging engagement from the business sector and the financial sector on the way they want to approach the transition to, uh, to carbon neutrality. And also the kind of initiatives coming out from the uh, UN Secretary General's Climate Action Summit in September last year, where there were a large number of commitments being made by financial actors, for example, on that they would be aiming for carbon neutrality by, by 2050. So these kind of developments, together with, you know, for example, the developments we're seeing within the European Union on sustainable finance, which is now sort of coming into force during the course of, of next year with the sort of a a joint taxonomy on how you're defining various types of finance. You know, are they green, brown, or is it something in between? So the combination of, of a regulatory environment which encourages investments in climate-friendly technology and climate-friendly development, together with the kind of engagement we're seeing from the private sector, 
will hopefully, you know, lead us towards that kind of path which we need to be on in order to to deliver on the Paris commitments. And ultimately, I guess it's also up to, you know, to you and me as consumers, as customers, as private citizens, as voters, to have that kind of approach, how we want to, you know, what kind of behavior do we want to see and what kind of choices do we make as consumers also. So all these various aspects have a role in this, in the transition which we need to make. And I think there's a lot of work ahead of us, but there's a lot of also a lot of encouraging signs, which I, I think and hope will lead us in, in the right direction. Thank you very much for these interesting insights, Matthias. It was really great to talk to you. Thanks for having me. So today I'm excited to be speaking to Tenting Wangmo, who is the lead negotiator for the Least Developed Countries Group at the UN Climate Negotiations. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for the opportunity. As introduced, I represent the Least Developed Countries Group. Thank you. So before we delve deeper into climate finance, I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about the special role of the Least Developed Countries Group in the UN Climate Negotiations. The Least Developed Countries uh, Group comprises uh, 47 countries representing over 1 billion people across Africa, Asia-Pacific and the Caribbean, which contribute the least to climate change, yet disproportionately suffer from its uh, ever-increasing impact. Uh, United behind this shared common interest and circumstances, the LDCs at the UNFCCC have been playing a very critical role since 2001 to ensure that our priorities are reflected in final negotiation outcomes. For example, in 2015, amongst other things, our group played important role in ensuring that the limit to global temperature goal of 1.5 degrees Celsius become a part of Paris Agreement objectives. The LDC group also continues to provide progressive leadership and inspire domestic climate action as demanded by the urgency of climate science, such as increasing the ability to adapt and foster climate resilience, and also making financial flow consistent with low greenhouse gas emission pathway. Having said that, our group also faces uh, very specific and special situations as we lack the resources to deal with climate impacts. So on climate finance in particular, uh, what are the least developed countries, groups, priorities regarding climate finance, particularly considering the outcomes of COP25 and looking ahead to COP26 next year. For the LDCs, parties should agree on a clear definition of climate finance to build solidarity amongst all countries. It may be easy to say that finance has been mobilized, but with no commonly agreed definition of climate finance, there will always be a mistrust because uh, people don't know whether it is a new or additional finance provided for climate change, or whether it is uh, the existing development aid repackaged for the climate project, or whether it is a loan money or a grant money, or whether it is a private investment or the public finance. So having a clear and common definition of climate finance is very critical for building trust among the parties. For us, we that there is no agreed process to track the progress made so far on achieving the goal of USD 100 billion per annum by 2020. Hence, developed countries should report on their effort in achieving 
the USD 100 billion goal by 2020 under the long-term finance work program in order to assess and track the status of the USD 100 billion per year by 2020. For LDCs, we continue to call for the extension of the long-term finance mandate beyond 2020 so that parties will have a forum to discuss long-term finance beyond 2020 under the convention. It is also important to link work under the long-term finance with the new collective quantified goal that advances beyond the current flow of USD 100 billion per year. There needs to be every timeline and process on setting a new long-term goal on climate finance. These important discussions need to be commenced in a timely manner so that proper consideration can be given to the matter prior to 2025. For the LDCs, the process also needs to be based on science and reflect the actual needs and priorities of the developing countries. And for us, again, we continue to call for a balance between adaptation and mitigation finance as there is a continued imbalance between adaptation and mitigation and for the need to support loss and damage. So I suppose more broadly, from the least developed countries group's perspective, what are the particular challenges and opportunities regarding climate finance? For the LDCs, uh, we have a lot of challenges, especially in terms of finance. For us, like finance is uh, key to unlocking the greater ambition to limit temperature increase to 1.5 degrees Celsius. In particular, the achievement and implementation of the current NDCs as uh, most developing countries' NDCs target are conditional on the availability of finance. For new and updated NDC, which is due for submission in 2020, should bring forward a more significant ambition in line with the 1.5 degree Celsius pathway. The main challenge that we face as LDC is accessing available resources from the various sources. In order for the LDC and other developing countries with limited capacity to benefit from this fund, access procedures of fund must be simplified and streamlined. For us, the LDC's business as usual Approaches to addressing climate change are not working. Only 18% of the global climate finance reaches LDC, and less than 10% of the climate finance actually has reached to the local level. So there are a lot of evidence showing that the adaptation financing gap in developing countries is still very wide. Despite all these difficulties, LDCs are also preparing our NDCs, our long-term strategy, and also our national adaptation plan as our contribution to the global process and to define our priorities on climate action. So assuming the COP26 will go ahead in 2021, from the LDC group's perspective, what would you say should be the priorities for the COP presidents, the UK and Italy, in terms of climate finance? For the LDCs, uh, as I mentioned earlier, Climate finance is key to unlocking the greater ambition to limit temperature increase to 1.5 degrees Celsius and adapting to the impacts of climate change. Therefore, we strongly feel that for COP26, closing the financing gap is very important and very critical. Developed countries have committed to jointly mobilize the USD 100 billion annually by 2020, but uh, we know that there is a significant gap in funding at all levels. So developed must showcase that they are in progress of achieving their committed uh, USD 100 billion by 2020. 
we also strongly feel that the parties must ensure that the discussion on long-term climate finance uh, should continue under the convention, and parties must also ensure that the process of setting a new collective quantified goal is initiated with clear timelines. And then if we think about the current situation and the global coronavirus crisis, it is pretty clear that the least developed countries are going to be hit particularly hard by this. How, from your perspective, should the discussions on the economic recovery plans take climate finance into account and the need for urgent climate action more broadly? As uh, you have rightly mentioned, for the LDCs, on top of the climate crisis that uh, we are already going through, now we are faced with the COVID-19 crisis, which makes our effort even more challenging. So there is now an urgent need for support to developing countries, especially at the LDCs, to build our resilience to the climate and health crisis. In terms of the direction as to how we package it, as the world recovers from this tragic uh, crisis of COVID-19, it is important that uh, we seize on the window of opportunity to build a climate-friendly economy that will make the planet uh, better. So economic recovery and stimulus packages should be invested in line with the objectives of the Paris Agreement. Thank you very much for this interview. Thank you, it's my pleasure. So today I'm delighted to be joined on the Climate Briefing by Rachel Ward. Rachel is the Programme Director for Policy at the Institutional Investors Group on Climate Change. And we're here to talk a bit about the role of investors in addressing the challenge of climate change and how they might play into the COP process. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Could you maybe, before we get on to the kind of meat of the discussion, could you tell us a bit about your organisation and and what you're trying to do? Of course. So the Institutional Investors Group on Climate Change, also known as IIGCC, is a European membership body very much focused on investor collaboration on climate change. So we host a network of around 230 investors, asset owners and asset managers who collectively represent about 30 trillion euros in in assets under management. And we're across 15 countries in Europe. Collectively, the mission is to mobilise private capital to support the transition to a net zero emissions global economy by working with fellow investors, but also with businesses and with policymakers. To what extent then, as you've got this view of the kind of investing world, to what extent are investors caring about climate change at the moment? And why are they getting involved in this space? It's a great question. I mean, certainly from our perspective, investors care deeply about climate change. And we're seeing the level of engagement from investors on on climate change increase very steadily. And there's various reasons for this. So firstly, Investors are what you could call stewards of of global private capital. And by that, I mean they're often invested across the vast majority of economic sectors, across the vast majority of geographic constituencies. And so they're quite uniquely exposed to systemic challenges like climate change. There's two elements to that exposure. Firstly, the physical risks of climate change that we're already seeing in, in large parts of the world, which have direct impacts on their assets already. So, um, I mean, there's some analysis out there that shows that if we stay on track with current temperature rises, then the cost of the world economy could be just under $8 trillion by, by 2050. But on the other hand, the move towards 
a net zero economy uh, from an emissions point of view. And that transition presents really significant investment opportunities for investors in new markets, new technologies, new business models. So on the flip side, we, we're seeing that there's around $26 trillion in economic benefits that could be unlocked by 2030 if bolder climate action were to be taken. So, you know, it's, it's very much as you would expect a financial analysis and a market analysis that backs up the actions that, that investors are taking right now on, on climate change and why they're so engaged. And so what actions, what sort of tangible actions are investors taking increasingly? Is it as simple as they are investing in companies that are working on green solutions or or particularly sustainable companies? Or or what are the sort of interventions that they're making? That's definitely part of it. And we, we do see investments into both lower carbon businesses or technologies, as well as on the resilience side, increasing steadily. And that's despite the costs of, the, of these technologies decreasing at the same time. But we're also seeing investors look at what they can do themselves within their own strategies, their own governance, set up their own risk management. So how is climate change really incorporated into their decision making processes? And then how are they reporting on that? How are they making making that information public, which is very important for, for transparency points of view and to, to get rid of any risks or accusations of potential greenwashing. And then there's also, as you say, from a company perspective where they have existing holdings that aren't in low carbon or climate resilient areas, the, the vast majority of investors want to use their levers as shareholders in those companies to try and encourage more positive change. So there's lots of work that, that investors do in a very coordinated way to engage with companies' boards to make sure that net zero emission strategies are being put in place, for example, that companies are setting up streams internally for their operations and their business planning that incorporate climate change, that they're rewarding their staff accordingly, mm. uh, and that they're when they're undertaking any kind of lobbying or advocacy activities with governments, that they're all in line with the goals of the Paris Agreement. And that's the final bit of work that investors themselves are doing is reaching out directly to governments to support processes like the, like the COP negotiations, but also more detailed policy development, at, whether it's the, the EU level or at the national level, so that the right policies are put in place that can send strong signals to investors about where and how to invest sustainably over the longer term. And I mean, without giving away too many secrets, have businesses and governments broadly been receptive to this kind of engagement from investors? I'd say absolutely. And on both those fronts, we've seen some really great examples, even quite recently. So we have a a really successful initiative called Climate Action 100+, which is geared around the the company angle. Through that initiative, we've seen some really good new commitments to net zero emissions from companies in very hard to to mitigate sectors, whether it's oil and gas or shipping or the vehicles and automotive sector. We're seeing companies review their membership of certain trade bodies who might have been undertaking more more negative lobbying activities. And then from a government point of view, we have very strong relationships with whether it's the EU institutions and and national governments within Europe who who are always very keen to hear what investors have to say uh, and to make sure that those views are are incorporated into policies as they're developed, whether they're, you know, from a sectoral point of view in in energy or buildings or or transport, uh, or if it's on the the kind of more sustainable finance side. And just to give an example, last year, when the UK was developing its thinking on its own net zero emissions target for 2050, 
one of the interventions that we undertook was a was a CEO letter to the Prime Minister explaining the, the financial case for such a target. And when it was eventually announced that this would be put into law, Number 10 tweeted out a list of all the signatories to say, great that we have the finance sector on board with this as well. So it was a really nice recognition of the role that investors can play in, in pushing for greater climate ambition. Oh, fantastic. And thinking about the COP process, which is obviously a, a major focus of the podcast and also the work that Chatham House do in this area, what particular actions are investors fighting for at that kind of international level? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're very engaged with the COP process and, and the UNFCCC more generally. What we try to do is, is really support as much level of ambition as we can in the outcomes of the negotiations, but also in the political signals that are, that are sent throughout the year and then from, from COP itself, which obviously won't happen this year at the end of the year, but normally is a, is a big annual milestone for us. Sure. So for COP26 specifically, what, what we've been really focused on and, and what we're main focused on are the nationally determined contributions to the, you know, the national emission reduction plans that each country submitted originally to the Paris Agreement. There's a, there's a big concern in the investor community that, that currently those NDCs only add up to, I think it's, you know, around 3.7 degrees of warming, which would be really catastrophic levels of, of climate change. And it's very far away from the, the 1.5 degree goal that investors support getting us onto a trajectory to achieve. So part of the the focus for us and the priority really for COP26 is trying to encourage countries to bring forward much higher levels of ambition in their NDCs ahead of COP or at the latest that COP itself to to get that cumulative total a lot closer to 1.5 as that would be an incredibly powerful investment signal to send globally and then making sure that we can have a basis to work with national governments to make those NDCs investable and to get them implemented on the ground. So yeah, we we work closely with both the UNFCCC as a body, but also we're, we're working very closely with the UK presidency with the high level champions on climate change to input as much thinking and as to showcase all the, the positive things that investors are doing right now and how all of that could really be scaled up and, and accelerated if these signals and, and policies were put in place in an effective way. Sorry, I should have asked this at, at the beginning, but to what extent is your organisation coordinating this on an international level? Have you got investors all over the place coordinating on this? Because it seems that, you know, when we come to the policy space and also government space, uh, the challenge is getting people from different nations and different contexts to all coalesce around some agreed actions. But is that something that's easier to do in the investor space? Or what's your uh, experience of that? You're, you're absolutely right that it's critical. I'd say that the challenges are probably as they are for, for every other sector. <laughs> um, but we're, we're definitely doing a lot of that. So IIGCC is a European investor body, but we work incredibly closely with our global sister organisations and partners. So there's there's a range of other investor networks around the world who are partly, you know, other regional groups and, and partly global groups. And there's seven of us who co-founded a platform called the Investor Agenda, which is where we try and look at our global collaboration and where we can add the most value to the COP process primarily. So I, as IIGCC, we co-chair the policy work of, of that group and uh, yeah, try and uh, herd a lot of cats to make sure that the global investor voice is really focused and targeted in the most effective way. What we managed to achieve last year was a, a global investor statement to governments on climate change, setting out the real importance of scaling up the NDCs, but also putting policies in place like robust carbon pricing, phasing out coal, implementing 
better uh, reporting and disclosure requirements um, that would, would really help investors scale up capital into new markets, businesses and, and technologies. And that, that statement was signed by 631 investors with over $37 trillion in, in assets under management, which was a record number of investors globally engaged on, on this issue and, and convalescing around what was quite a ambitious set of policy recommendations and we did see that really resonate with the global community i mean the the un secretary general mentioned the statement at his climate action summit in new york he talked about it twice at cop 25 and he, he also referenced it in a opinion piece he did in the autumn so it, again it was great to see how influential the investor voice can be and given that the amount of signatories to that letter represented around half of the world's invested capital i think it really hammered home just how mainstream this is becoming from a financial point of view as well as obviously from from many other different perspectives globally just pursuing this kind of question of the different geographical contexts that you're having to work across have you seen much of a change recently in investment going towards developing countries on the green agenda in that sense? We are seeing flows of, of private finance into developing countries from a, from a low carbon or a, and or a climate resilience point of view. I'd say it's, mm-hmm. it's probably nowhere near the level that we would like to see right now. And, and that's for a range of reasons. I mean, there are obviously challenges for many developing countries directly related to climate change that, that impact on investment. And some of these are around physical risk and, and, and damages that we're already seeing and what that might mean for insurance, for example. But there's, a, there's also a host of very separate reasons or reasons that are exacerbated by climate change. And I'm talking about things like political stability or conflict, governance issues or corruption. There's also a real predominance of what we call micro projects in the developing world as well, which aren't necessarily always attractive as attractive to investors as big consolidated projects where where they can have a lot less complexity so there's things that we can do to work with the countries themselves but also organizations like the multilateral development banks and donor governments who are already supporting wider sustainable development activities in these countries to, to mitigate some of these risks so we're trying to do as much of that as possible but some of the conversations are very complex but we're also seeing some, some leading investors really take a, a, a good role in setting out examples of how this can work. So to get around, for example, the micro projects angle, they're, they're looking at microfinancing arrangements where they can zoom in on more of a community level, bring in other actors to mitigate some of the risk or the, the complexity around that where they can operate on a trust basis. For example, one of our own board members has done this very successfully in Africa with a lot of agricultural sustainable projects where we've, we've seen some really great benefits flow out, not just from a climate change point of view, but from a wider sustainability and prosperity point of view as well. So we try and share lessons where we can of, of how certain practices can work. But there's so much more to do in this space if we're going to see private capital really scaled up and supporting the public finance that's, that's already going into these countries as well. And I'm coming towards the end, but I wanted to ask you a, a question about the impact of coronavirus. It seems that inevitable we're going to have to <laughs> come back to this subject. Every conversation yeah. at the moment feels like it's revolving around this. But what I wanted to ask was basically during the disruption that we're seeing to the global economy as a result of the pandemic and the lockdown measures in many countries, has that affected investor confidence at the moment like what's what's been the impact of it and do you think that 
in the future, this could have an impact on confidence in investing in the climate space down the line in some alternate reality when things go back to normal in a couple of years, hopefully. It's, it's, it's dominating so many of our discussions at the moment. But I mean, what I'd say first, obviously, it's, it's a very live and fast paced picture that's emerging. So just as a caveat to my remarks, they might be out of date quite quickly. Predict but uh, what, what we're seeing is that certainly investors are having to, to pivot quite rapidly, like most organisations and governments around the, the short-term urgent impacts that need addressing as a result of the pandemic. So there's a lot of focus on just managing their assets on a day-to-day basis and, and trying to keep as many of their holdings afloat to mitigate the worst of the, the longer-term economic impact that's, that's being anticipated. But we're certainly not seeing climate change drop off the radar for any of them that, that we work with closely. And if anything, we're seeing a renewed call for climate to be put very clearly at the heart of wider government recovery packages and and longer term responses to the pandemic um, in order to make sure that we're we're really building a sustainable future going forward. So I absolutely don't see the prospect of investor confidence in uh, whether it's low carbon or, or climate resilience investment being impacted over the, the the medium or the longer term what, what we're seeing is kind of the opposite that they want that really brought to the fore so we're, we're, we'll be doing a lot of work with governments on recovery initiatives and, and stimulus packages to make sure that we can try and ensure that those signals are really embedded at, at, the, at the heart of how all this is is taken forwards more broadly so for the few investors who maybe you know are smaller and are struggling with capacity at the moment what what they've asked us to do is try and plug the gap for them if they aren't able to be engaging as much on climate issues as they would like to right now because they have quite urgent priorities but organizations like IIGCC are very well equipped to step up and keep the the political momentum and um, the action moving forwards while all these challenges are, are very live so that's precisely what we're what we're doing right now. That's a very reassuring thought. Thank you. I, my final question, I hope it's not going to put a dampener onto, onto that positive message, but it's a question around expectations and managing expectations. Now, obviously, with the sums of capital that we're talking about and the influence that we've been discussing today, they're vast in everyday, normal person terms. And I think that something that we've observed in the media debates around climate action and things is that you've got these rich people, these rich investors or these funds that have the power to just transform this overnight. And why aren't they doing it? Why aren't they just spending all this money on on finding the solutions, the technological solutions that we need to transition to a sustainable economy, etc. I suppose my question really is, as much as you want to influence the discussion what would be your message around what you can really expect investors to do in this space yeah it's, it's a very valid challenge and as a result of that we we had some of our members approach us last year to, to look at really how could we drill down into addressing this and what could we do as, as the investor community to really produce a step change in in how investors approach their portfolios and their funds in in support of the goals of the Paris Agreement. So we have quite a flagship project running precisely on this question at the moment called the Paris Aligned Investment Initiative. Mm. And what that will do ultimately is is hopefully provide the tools and 
the methodologies that investors need to be able to make commitments for their portfolios to, to completely align with the Paris goals. It, it sounds like a simple commitment to make, but it's it's a very complex question when you start drilling into, you know, what it means for different sectors. Are you doing it from a bottom up or a very strategic top down point of view? What kind of fund are you? Where are you based? And, and um, what are your ultimate objectives in terms of, you know, what your beneficiaries need? So what we're trying to do is not recommend a one size fits all approach at all, but build a kind of toolkit so that investors can can take their own circumstances and then try and match that against what it will mean for them to be aligned with Paris. And what we're hoping ultimately that that toolbox will allow them to achieve is that not just individual leaders within the sector, but the whole sector itself has the means then to shift very large sums of capital towards achieving the goals of the Paris Agreement, which which hasn't really been done before. So we're optimistic on this front. It's still a work in progress, obviously, but we'll be reporting on that later in the year. So I'd encourage listeners to keep their eyes peeled for, for more information as that emerges. Optimism is what we like. Well, I think I'm going to leave it there then. Rachel Ward, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Thank you very much. And that's it for this episode. Well, we hope you enjoyed the latest instalment of the Climate Briefing. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with some more interviews for you. In particular, we're going to be having an interesting conversation with one of our colleagues in the Energy, Environment and Resources Programme, Ishulua Akintunde, to talk more about the developing countries' involvement with this financing debate. If you want to listen to our previous episodes, they're all online. They're on whichever podcast app you listen to. They're also at theclimatebriefing.libsyn.com, L-I-B-S-Y-N, and follow the Energy, Environment and Resources Programme on Twitter at ch underscore environment. Till next time, have a great week.